0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey Adapters, welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm partnering with Forerunner, a software company that works with local governments to help them with disaster management, flood risk, and adapting to future impacts of climate change. We'll hear from floodplain managers working in both riverine flooding areas and coastal flood zones. These guys are on the ground finding ways to help their communities with extreme flooding and changes expected with a changing climate. You'll hear how technology increasingly plays a role in the work they do and how communication and outreach are critical to getting their communities' support and establishing effective of flood prevention programs. Susanna Foe, co-founder of Forerunner, shares with us how climate analytics and technology are helping some of these frontline adapters, in this case, floodplain managers, do their jobs more effectively. It was fantastic to learn what is actually happening out there with these floodplain managers and what tools they find useful for better flood and disaster risk management. It's a mixed group and you will learn a ton. Okay, before we get started, I want to give you a heads up on the next Patel Innovations and in Climate Resilience Conference, or ICR24. Battelle is presenting their third annual Innovations and in Climate Resilience Conference with the theme Solutions for Scaling Change that captures the urgency and the growing need for innovations at scale to meet the monumental task of addressing climate change. The conference will take place on April 22nd to April 24th, 2024, this year in Washington, D.C., ICR24 will gather innovators from across industry, academia, and government. This is the second ICR that I'll be covering for Battelle. We partnered on an episode for ICR23 in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm excited to announce a continuation of that partnership. The themes of this conference are mitigation, sustainability, and yes, adaptation. ICR24 is your opportunity to join scientists and researchers from academia, industry, and government working at the forefront of climate innovation. Visit patel.org forward slash adapt to learn more. That's patel forward slash adapt. Links are in my show notes. Support for American Adapts comes from Patel, where science and technology are applied to help create a safer, healthier, more resilient world. Okay, let's learn how c- local communities are dealing with flood risk with Forerunner. Hey, adapters. Joining me is Susanna Faux. Susanna is the co-founder and COO of Forerunner. Hi, Susanna. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, Doug. It's great to be with you.
0: We've got a great episode here. We've got a lot of interesting people coming up, but let's ground everyone first. What is Forerunner?
1: is a software company. We operate around a mission and that mission is to enable climate adaptation for communities throughout the country. So we work with government agencies. We work with governments of all sizes throughout the country, ranging from super small coastal New Jersey communities to state agencies. And we create software that helps them with everything from regulating compliance in their floodplains to communicating in a more nuanced way to their public around flood risk and opportunities for mitigation to responding in a more informed way post-disaster. And the world of floodplain management, which is the world in which we work, is really complex. And so a lot of our work is centered on distilling down that complexity in a way that empowers the work of floodplain managers on a day-to-day basis.
2: Let's
0: talk about your role at Forerunner. You're the co-founder and the chief operating officer. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, it means a lot of different things. So I founded the company with my co-founder, JT White, in 2019. And we started as just a two-person company, but we've scaled to be about 30 people now, which is really exciting. And my role entails a lot of things. You know, uh, I work basically across the board, anywhere from talking to some of our partners who are interested in utilizing Forerunner to see if it's a good fit for them, to helping them on board, to making sure that uh, the word is out about what we do.
0: I'm gonna learn a little bit more background about you specifically. So how did you get? I mean, you've co-founded this company, but what's your background? How did you get into this space? You're doing software, or were you were you a software developer? Just tell us a bit about your history.
1: I was actually probably the furthest from being a software developer that you couldn't be. I was actually in architecture. And so my formal training is in architecture, and so is that of my co-founder, JT. So we both have an architecture background, which is really has been really beneficial in this space just because we have a lot of knowledge about the built environment. But at the time that we founded Forerunner, I was at Harvard studying risk and resilience. So really on the kind of policy and planning side of things, trying to understand some of the implications of how we plan around disasters. And my co-founder, JT, he was leading product teams at some really great startups in New York. And we got together around a shared personal interest in the resilience space and in flooding and founded the company.
0: Very cool. Let's talk a little technical stuff here too because when I interviewed these folks and I've already interviewed everybody just so my listeners know that. Let's ground folks because we data and technology is an imp- part of this episode. And so let's talk about how forerunner supports disaster recovery efforts because that's going to be a common theme throughout the episode.
1: So I think when people talk about disaster recovery, a lot of people don't really think about how important blue sky compliance to sort of day-to-day floodplain ordinances and sort of how important it is to post-disaster recovery. But it's really important to sort of make sure that everything is built up to code and that everyone knows their risk before a disaster happens. So you have a well-informed public and you have a community that is sort of prepared both from a structural standpoint, but then also from a community knowledge standpoint to respond to disasters. So I think that that's what you'll hear from some of your speakers today. They'll talk a little bit about how those things are intertwined. But as it pertains to Forerunner, you know, we, a lot of the software is structured to help them with day-to-day compliance. So helping our partners, government agencies, make sure that Everything that's built in their communities is up to code and that it is resilient against flood risk. And then after that, we help them with providing data to residents, making sure that they keep their residents informed of what their flood risk is and what potential mitigation opportunities exist. And then also one of the biggest challenges in disasters is sort of having your ducks in a row before a disaster happens, right? So making sure that you have all the data in place that you need and all the processes in place that you need to collect data really quickly after disaster happens to be able to respond quickly and to be able to mobilize resources quickly. And so some of the things that Foreigner does to sort of help on this front is we help to consolidate data sort of across the board as it pertains to flood risk. So bringing all of the information that might inform post-disaster response into one place, including sort of some of the compliance data, but then also things like future sea level rise maps and sort of post-disaster inspection maps, things like that. And then we also make it easy to collect data post-disaster. We have a feature that does preliminary damage assessments. So that's a really important thing that government agencies need to do after disasters. They need to go out and collect information about who was hardest hit. That's really important so that they can mobilize post-disaster funding, but also so that they can mobilize their own resources to send people out to help.
0: Do you guys cover a lot of ground with this software? But I don't think I heard in there that how the the software allows residents to access information on their individual property.
1: So the software has sort of two sides. There's an internal facing dashboard where our users will use it to sort of understand what the flood risk is for individual properties internally, track data internally. Um, And then for most of our partners, we also spin up a uh, public website for them to make available to the public so that anybody in any jurisdiction that we work in, um, I think we work in over 80 uh, governments now, um, can go to that website and look up their individual flood risk for their property. And if they have questions for their floodplain manager or for their local government, they can use a form on that website to submit information request. So it really helps us streamline that communication.
0: So these floodplain managers that I'm interviewing this episode. They use a lot of language and there's a lot of assumptions that I think they're so used to being in this space. But so the software actually helps government agencies in fulfilling requirements for the National Flood Insurance Program and the Community Rating System. I, and I had never heard of the Community Rating System before, right?
1: Most communities in the US are uh, NFIP participating communities. And as NFIP participating communities, they do have to sort of do things like enforce minimum floodplain regulations, do a certain amount of record keeping. One of the big big things is collect information about lowest floor elevations. All of that can be fairly difficult from a record keeping standpoint, but is important to maintain compliance to that federal program. Um, So we help with a lot of that sort of data gathering and data consolidation. And then with the CRS, the CRS is a really interesting program, and um, the community rating system is a federal program that is voluntary, and a lot of our partners participate in it because it offers discounts on flood insurance in exchange for community-level mitigation activities. A lot of those mitigation activities require documentation and re- sort of annual reporting, and we help with the reporting, but then also the data collection. So a good example of that is for these documents called elevation certificates. Communities participating in the CRS have to make sure that their elevation certificates are correct in order to stay in the program. We have a feature that helps them check those elevation certificates for compliance. It has twofold benefits, The one of which is to help them stay in the program, but also it helps them make sure that they're enforcing compliance in their floodplains.
0: So, gosh, this is just all the sausage making when it comes to adaptation planning. All right, let's get started with these guys. They have some amazing stories. Just give us a very broad overview. Who's coming on?
1: Yeah, so we have a bunch of great people today. So we have Del Schwals, Matthew Langley from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Seamus Riley and Maggie Talley from Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, and then Mike Tuline from Point Pleasant Beach. So a great mix of people from coastal communities as well as riverine communities.
0: Susanna, you're going to come back on at the end of the episode. We're going to talk a bit more about the work that you're doing and just a little discussion on some of the ground that we covered, but I'll see you at the end of the episode.
1: Great. Looking forward.
0: Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Maggie Talley and Seamus Riley from Jefferson Parish, Louisiana. Hi, Maggie and Seamus. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you.
3: Hi. It's great to be here.
0: Maggie, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to let you introduce yourself, position, title, what you do
3: there. I'm the director of floodplain management and hazard mitigation department here at Jefferson Parish and mostly focused on the elevation and mitigation reconstruction of residential structures, those that are more at risk or repetitive flooded properties. And we also help to help people or do our best to help people understand flood insurance, why it's different for their, from themselves and their neighbors, and try to make sense of that for people and do a bunch of other things that are related to flood risk education and outreach and, and mitigation in general.
0: Great. Now, Seamus, tell me your role and responsibilities.
4: Sure. I'm the floodplain manager and CRS specialist. And CRS stands for the Community Rating System, which is a FEMA NFIP program. And really, sort of the gist of that program is that the more you do to go above and beyond the expectations of the NFIP as far as community awareness and outreach and, and, and multiple other things, the more you are sort of rewarded with it, with a, a point system that we have. So I run the CRS program and also the floodplain manager for Jefferson Parish.
0: James, I'm going to stick with you and I want to just ground people in Jefferson Parish. I've been in Louis, Louisiana a bunch of times, but tell me a bit about Jefferson. Tell me like geographically where it's at. Is it a big population center? Just get people grounded on what, where you're coming from.
4: Sure. We are located, we actually are adjacent to the to Orleans Parish, which is obviously where the city of New Orleans is located. We are right on the south shore of Lake Pontchartrain. Really, we stretch for about 55 miles geographically from the north to the south. We start right there at the south shore of Lake Pontchartrain, and we stretch all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, um, about 55 miles down. And we have a population right around, I believe it's right around 450,000 people. We're the second most populous parish in Louisiana. And yeah, it's a wonderful place to be. It's full of culture. It's it's a mecca for a lot of different activities and it's just a, a neat place to reside. Great.
0: So Maggie, let's talk about flooding and give us some context there. And it's probably one of the few areas in the United States where a lot of us actually probably have somewhat idea of what you guys deal with, but tell us on the ground, what are some of the flood management issues that you have to deal with? (laughs)
3: how much time do we have? I would say some of the, the major ones is we're very flat where we are. And so interior drainage is a big proponent of how we manage our flooding issues here. After Hurricane Katrina, we were fortunate to get a lot of mitigation dollars to help us with our infrastructure, mainly gray infrastructure. So that would include the drainage system, as well as the levee system. But the flooding that we get, it's not really so much riverine flooding because we are levied off from the Mississippi River as well as like Pontchartrain. It's more about interior drainage where our pumps do an amazing job, but sometimes the rainfall just, it's too overwhelming for the system. And so people who who do flood here, it's because they're on low ground and the more development that happens, it, it becomes that bathtub effect where There's just not anywhere for water to go other than up. We, we we're sanely concreted throughout Jefferson Parish. And that's something that we're putting a lot of effort into right now is looking at green infrastructure features that can help to kind of take out some of that concrete and replace it with things that allow water to actually penetrate into the ground and into the soil. And because of the concrete and kind of the infrastructure we've had in place for the last few decades, we are seeing an insane rate of subsidence happening in our area where structures are literally sinking. And in many cases, we're starting to see cracks and some fundamental issues with foundations and that kind of thing. So rain, uh, I think it's true. I think the NFIP puts this out there, which is that anywhere it, it rains, it can flood. And with the fact that we Get a, a, an average of 64 inches of rain a year. We're kind of at risk on any given day. So, we've been working hard to address that risk. And yeah, and, and I will say that what we've been seeing now that we're getting more intense events as far as hurricanes are concerned and, and extreme heat and, and other things I mean, the rain events and the weather events that are bringing in this, this crazy amount of rainfall. The properties that have actually been elevated through our program are not the ones that are getting water inside their homes. And so mitigation on the ground, we can see for sure, is helping. It's making a difference and it's helping to protect families and their you know, biggest asset.
0: Okay, Seamus, I want you to build on that. So I'm from Florida originally, I'm here in Arizona now, but Florida hurricanes were always something that we had to worry about. So you have your own issues dealing with flood management, because you're a rainy place. What happens when these hurricane events? I mean, how does your day job change in respect to that? Because it's just, it's these very unusual things that happen.
4: Sure, yeah, it's really before the hurricane it it seems like we have less and less warning now with the way that these systems are rapidly intensifying, so before the hurricane, it's pretty much we just we all work and we watch and wait and we see where what's going to happen. But after the storm, it's really all dependent on the impact and, and how much damage has occurred. We've had plenty of storms, uh, some very recently that have gone through that really didn't have much of a negative impact, and so didn't really change our day to day that much and then we have storms like Ida. Hurricane Ida that absolutely flipped our sort of world upside down for quite a bit of time. And we are still, we're getting back to normal, but we are still working on just a tremendous amount of stuff that has to do with Ida. So it really is just impact dependent. Once the storm hits, we go out and we do damage assessments. And that kind of starts the whole process with what we do after a big storm comes through. And Maggie, do you have anything to add to that?
3: Right. So once the damage assessments are underway, it helps us to triage the areas that we're going to go and do more extensive substantial damage estimates, which is an NFIP requirement that participating communities must do after a storm. And we do that kind of a step-by-step process where we will gather our team internally. And we have these sort of ready-to-go bags that have a lot of great information for people who have just recently gone through a storm as far as resources on how to start moving forward. Because in most cases, you can't just start rebuilding, you need to get a permit. If you're substantially damaged, then that requires you to meet the height requirements from FEMA. Let's say you don't currently meet the elevation standard in your current ordinance or your local community's ordinance, and that house needs to be elevated before it can be repaired. There are a lot of kind of pieces to that process of understanding. Number one, where did the major damage happen? Number two, who is substantially damaged based off of individual assessments and visual assessments rather. And then I think the third option is allowing people to get told, hey, you're substantially damaged. Please come into our office before you begin any repairs. And they have that opportunity at at that point in time to either to make an appeal. If they don't agree with the assessment, they can submit documentation that will allow them to kind of contest the decision and depending on how that comes out, they can either then get a permit and, and go ahead and start their repairs or they need to, to wait. And we work with them to try to get them into an elevation grant or reconstruction grant so that they can get mitigated and therefore have an elevated home moving forward that will protect them from flooding in, again in the future.
0: Okay, great. I want to talk about data and technology and I want you both to take a cra- Act this how does the use of data? I'm thinking of flooding software and such. And where this is a forerunner episode, but how are you guys using that information? What you do, and uh, maybe start with Maggie.
3: I mean, so data is critical in being able to assess the amount of structures that we have in Jefferson Parish. We have roughly 160,000, and so after Hurricane Ida, because of its sort of breadth geographically of where it hit, we had to assess the entire parish, and so we had a lot of teams deployed and. Luckily, we're able to get a custom made tool created that allowed us to sort of track all of that within essentially an app on our phone. It had all of our addresses pre-populated. Teams could go out, click on a dot, essentially add in a few comments, take a photo, and it all lived on that app that then we were able to do our assessments from and make those determinations. Then moving forward, I mean, when it comes to Forerunner, and I, I think Seamus will have more to add to this, but Forerunner site's been incredible for us because It houses our elevation certificates that we have on file that have information regarding first floor elevations. So we can kind of get a sense of how high, what were the water depths in different areas. And then we can look at that elevation certificate data and kind of compare the two to understand where we might have some of the worst damage just from an analytical viewpoint. And that could be a a person or a team kind of looking analytically while they've got the, the actual teams that are on the ground in the field capturing the the real life data. So technology is everything for us and it's what allowed us to get our assessments done as quickly as we were able to. And it also we've been able to kind of build in additional components as we've gone through the process because the substantial damage determination is 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 kind of the first in the in the early steps of that process. But then if people did go to pull a permit to do repairs, because maybe they contested their IC their substantial damage status and were able to say, actually, I'm not substantially damaged, or I already meet FEMA's elevation criteria, then they can get a permit, go ahead and do their repairs. And we can track that permit in the system. So everything's in one place that allows us to then pull a report and print out like a one pager per property, um, which actually came in very handy because at the there's something that FEMA calls an 89-day letter after an event. And so when we got that letter, we were not expecting it, but we were able to fulfill the request within just a matter of a few days because we'd already been capturing the data in a way that we can easily export, filter, and share. So it's been absolutely critical for us.
0: And, and Seamus, I want you to maybe sh- give your own perspective, but maybe factor into it. Are these tools useful when you're communicating to the public or, I guess, elected officials or county leaders? I mean, has technology played a role in that?
4: Sure, absolutely. I kind of feel like we've been under like a little bit of a, or gone through a little bit of a technological sort of renaissance over the last couple of years. It, we've really invested a lot of time and energy in programs that we have signed up for, and they've really resulted in quite a bit of benefit. We do have on our website, on the floodplain website for Jefferson Parish, we do have an online portal section. And in the portal section, we have everything from you can get your own flood zone determination, you can apply for coastal permits and stuff like that. But um, another thing we have is elevation certificate uh, database. It's a, it's a search and that is through Forerunner. And so by using this software, by uploading all of our elevation certificates and then putting it on our website, not only are we providing that access to the public, but we're also checking one of those boxes that through the community rating system, it's a requirement that you do make all of the elevation certificates available for the public. We absolutely are using them to benefit the public. With Forerunner specifically, I work a lot with it, and we've, I'm, I think right now we've uploaded just about 26,000 elevation certificates into the program. So that's an interface that is right there for the public to view. It it contains numerous layers of data all on this one interface. And a lot of that data is extremely large in size, which is typically hard to work with for anybody internally and externally. So to have all of that in a system that is smooth and just consistently functional is very rewarding for us and for our residents. Maggie, so
0: I've learned a lot about floodplain management just from my conversations for this episode. And one of the things I didn't realize is that sometimes people that don't even have background in it, because it might be a rural county or small county, you may be the tax collector, but you're doing some floodplain management work. But then you have highly sourced, highly resourced, highly technical experts. And any advice you could give to floodplain managers if you think of that spectrum out there? And I'm sure in Louisiana itself, you probably have very rural counties where floodplain managers really don't have many resources. What kind of advice would you give them to kind of what they're doing?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, we kind of see that on a day to day basis, even within Jefferson Parish and the incorporated municipalities within it. We do a regular meeting on, on a monthly basis that we call the Jefferson United Mitigation Professionals Group, which basically is the floodplain manager for each of those communities within Jefferson Parish that come together to work through that community rating system program James mentioned at the beginning. And just thinking about the roles that those people, those individuals play, some are building officials, some are actually town clerks who do payroll and, and taxes and run floodplain management and see that CRS program. They kind of do it all and wear a ton of different hats. And so oftentimes we were kind of caught up in that situation where we unincorporated Jefferson Parish are in a position and have access to resources rather easily that we can, for instance, I mean, in Seamus's title, he is a dual position of floodplain manager and CRS coordinator. And there's not another community within Jefferson Parish that has kind of a person designated as that dual role or just the CRS coordinator. It's often something that gets added on top of, of a lot of other job duties. And so my advice to to people who are in that situation where they, maybe floodplain management's not their number one everyday main job, or they just don't have, like you said, the resources at their fingertips. My advice is to try to understand the others in your area or your region. If there is a local or a state floodplain management association, become part of that group so that you can kind of build in that network for when you are coming across specific issues or need direction. You have then a working group of people that you can reach out to and know that you're getting kind of some expertise on something that maybe that individual might not feel 100% confident in because they just don't deal with it every day. There are a lot of resources. Luckily, there are a ton of online resources, but I don't know about how you guys feel. I I know I feel pretty inundated with information overload on an everyday basis. So I think just saying, oh, you've got this resource and that and just kind of doling out website after website that can be more daunting, I think, than helpful. So I always personally like to talk to people and kind of talk through issues that I'm that I'm coming across. And so I think for me, that would be the, the best way to go about it is just build in those connections with other professionals in the system.
0: Okay, so last question, and I'll be honest, is probably what my listeners want to hear the most, that we know where you guys are located. Do you have a favorite Cajun restaurant, and what's your favorite Cajun dish there? And Seamus, we're going to start with you, and boy, I hope you say you do.
4: Well, so I do, and I'm a little bit different because I moved down here. I'm from the D.C. area, and I moved down down here eight years ago. And um, I'm still very, very new to the culture, as it would be considered down here. But I immediately fell into the whole crawfish craze. And uh, I yes. really, honestly, probably eat crawfish. Crawfish, may, probably about twice a week, when, especially <laughs> during peak seasons. That is my crutch and something that I just I very much enjoy.
0: When I go through Louisiana, if I'm through some country town, it's just going to a restaurant and do a crawfish boil. They just dump it on the table. It truly is one of my favorite meals of all time. So <laughs> Maggie, wait, take a crack at this.
3: Yeah, so I'm actually from Houma, which is just an hour southwest from here. And so I've been in that Cajun cuisine my whole life. And there's so many options to love. But my go-to is actually red beans and rice. I like to try a lot of different places just to compare. Because there's some that I really love and others I'm not so fond of. But I'm constantly on the lookout for like, what's my absolute favorite place to get red beans and rice? And there are a lot of great contenders here. So no complaints at all.
0: All right. Fantastic. (laughs) I appreciate both of you coming on and sharing what you're doing there in Jefferson Parish, And thanks for coming on the podcast.
3: Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Of course. Thank
4: you.
0: Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Michael Tuline. Michael is a construction official and floodplain administrator. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. So let's just give some people some context of who you are and where you're at. So where are you based out of?
5: So, I live and uh, work in Point Pleasant, New Jersey, on the uh, the middle of the coast here in the Jersey Shore. And uh, I'm a construction official in the building department here in one of the local towns.
0: This is obviously a highly populated region, right?
5: Yeah. The town I live in and the town I work in here, are for the county, we're, we're the most populated towns in the county. And then, obviously, New Jersey as a whole being one of the more densely populated states.
0: Can you give us some background about flooding issues in this region?
5: Go. So. On the Jersey Shore, one, it being an oceanfront, and two, we, New Jersey has a lot of water that goes out to the ocean through a barrier island system. There's a history of flooding going back long before you know, Europeans ever hit the shores here. So a lot of our, our areas are floodways, natural floodways, and big marshes and big estuaries that feed into the ocean in different natural canals and man-made canals. And then depending on the day of the week, we might get a lot of rain too that floods that system, and then it goes through the bays. Normally, the bay would handle the overflow of water, and then eventually it makes it out to the ocean. And then on occasion, we've had many nor'easters on a more of a regular basis, but occasionally hurricanes that come and hit the Jersey Shore. And then we get flooding via the way of the ocean coming in into the bays from the ocean and just overwhelming the whole system, generally because you have now tidal surge coming in and rainwater trying to go out at the same time. So... We have a lot of development on the waterfront that goes up and down our coast because it's a beautiful place to live when it's a nice day. However, when those two uh, surges meet between the ocean and the rain, everyone's house gets flooded a lot.
0: I imagine Hurricane Sandy impacted you guys in a big way.
5: It did, especially in the area where I lived. The big picture where everybody sees where the ocean broke through, right where a bridge was and Manilocan, New Jersey, connects to Brick, New Jersey. You literally go a mile and a half down that road. That's the house I grew up in. One of the f- first people to actually walk over that bridge and see the other side was my little brother <laughs> going under there, over there. <laughs> Unannounced to me, I would have told him to stop. But that all affected us. I, I've. It still affects me to this day in the job that I do. As an elected official in, in the town I live in, Point Pleasant Borough, I was elected after the storm, actually. But it, the whole five years I served there as council, we were still reeling and dealing with multitude of issues that came from that storm. And then I actually worked for a nonprofit or worked with a nonprofit. I was a board member of getting a lot of money in the door to help thousands and thousands of families recover from that all across Ocean County, Monmouth County, and different parts of New Jersey. You told me about
0: a model floodplain ordinance. And I think walk us through that because it'll hopefully explain a lot of the work that you're doing there. But what was that process? And I think it was the first of its
5: kind, right? As far as I understand, I I don't pretend to be an expert in (laughs) every flood law out there. It's a big country. So from what I understand, FEMA was pushing the state of New Jersey, which is the, as far as the hierarchy goes, you got FEMA, goes to state, state. Pick some division of the state to make sure we're doing the flood rules that FEMA comes up with. And then the state level there decides, are we going to push it down to more local stuff like county organizations or municipal organizations? So, as I understand it, FEMA came up with hey, state of New Jersey, we don't feel you're doing enough. We need to come up with something so that we understand and we know and we could create data to show that you are following all the flood rules that we as a federal government are making. State of New Jersey through the Department of Environmental Protection came up with a thing called a model floodplain ordinance. So it's not necessarily a law on the state level, but it's a law that they're requiring all the local municipalities that are in charge of flood control or flood enforcement, flood rule enforcement to adopt and utilize. So the state of New Jersey put it down on multiple municipalities to uh, enforce these rules, the one where I work in, the one where I live in, and several other around here. So the town I work in where we were one of the very first towns to adopt this model ordinance. It's a big ordinance. It's written by the state of New Jersey, has all kinds of rules in it, points in all kinds of directions between construction code rules, FEMA rules, state rules, our local Department of Environmental Protection rules that must be followed whenever you're doing anything in a, a floodplain area. So the town I work in, a large majority of the town is in a floodplain area. Most of the work that gets accomplished in this town, whether you're building a doghouse or a nuclear power plant, you have to go through this process of a floodplain development permit. And uh, that's where it comes on the municipality to do the whole process from nuts to bolts. So physical applications you hand over to a developer or someone building their doghouse, walking them through the application, walking them through the information you need to know to make sure they're complying with the flood rules. And then inspecting the work that's done to make sure it meets the flood rules and then post that collecting and keeping all the data forever (laughs) to see what happened or be able to go back and prove to FEMA or the state of New Jersey that you are indeed enforcing those rules, inspecting the rules that you're enforcing and maintaining the data so that in the hopes that the town that you're in is becoming more resilient every day to flood issues.
0: Okay, so on paper that sounds like a really good idea, model ordinance. It's helping with water quality and such. But how's the from a practical standpoint? Is it something that you find a really useful framework for you to have these conversations and processes, or are they are there things that need to change?
5: It's very useful. I, I'm seeing the benefit of it today, and I'm seeing things move better. And because we're almost forcing people to get educated, so you're forcing homeowners and businesses. You know, we're, we're much more stringent on how we're doing it, and the. Uh, kind of go sideways real quick. There's a uniform construction code for the state of New Jersey. So when you build a house in New Jersey, there are certain business, uh, codes that should be the same, whether or not I'm building a house in Bergen County or Cape May County. However, they're all enforced by different people. And they're individuals. The same guy does not work in Bergen County that works in in uh, Cape May County. So he might enforce the code slightly different. And then if you don't have that level of uniform code, which we really didn't have at the time for flood it was even more confusing. So now we're getting more of a uniform code. There's a lag time between us being the first people to adopt it. And then obviously the last couple towns in New Jersey to adopt it, which probably won't happen for another two or three years. So once it's all uniform, it's it's helpful because it's the benefit is education to everybody, even though you're kind of forcing it down their throat. But it's it's for the better. And on the other side of that, we have this big, clumsy process that's pushed out by the state of New Jersey via FEMA. And there's not a lot of instruction on how to do it. That's where I kind of came in. I, I got dropped on my head and they're like, all right, do this. And you're like, this is a 40 40- page application. (laughs) Do what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Where are all the reference pieces for this? Oh, we don't know. You got to figure that out. That's where I feel it's gotten too clunky because when the Uniform Construction Code came out, there was a whole team of people. There's background, there's code places. Like I'm not saying it was perfect when it came out and it was like 74, 75, but there was more preparation handed over to towns to do it. This seemed to be way less prepared, but rolled out faster. Now I'm literally... The guy half the time, I have municipalities calling me a couple, two, three times a week. We've adopted the ordinance. What do we do, Mike? How do we do this? And they're like, sure, give me 60 hours to explain to you how I do this. <laughs> Let me show you how the software, is the notifications to the customers, how you teach your inspectors, how do you track the data somewhere? How do you, you, know, be peaceful and kind to people to explain to them that you're only trying to keep their house from flooding and you're not there to, you know, make their cost of their project increase threefold.
0: This is the sausage making of floodplain management. <laughs> exactly. 100%. <laughs> well, and, and I'm curious, you, you'd mentioned that the ordinance kicks in within the floodplain. Now, I think every state and maybe even cities are different. What is there? You use the language like, okay, is the floodplain a one in a hundred year event, one in a 500? Do you guys use those terminologies?
5: Uh, yes, we do. So we are very lucky as a, as a municipality, to, where I live and where I work, FEMA's completely mapped our area. So it's very easy for me to go back to FEMA and look at the flood map that came out in 2018 and go, your house is in the flood zone or your lot's in the flood zone or not. So we're smaller towns, densely populated, but smaller towns. But the, FEMA's gone ahead and done that significant research for us. And now that I've been doing this flood stuff for a while and, and seeing more and more of it, I realize across the country, a lot of municipalities, even some in New Jersey, don't have detailed flood maps. So you might buy a house and try and go to a FEMA flood map and go, you am I in the flood zone? You just don't know. You, no one's going to tell you. So then you have to go to someone like myself, who is the certified floodplain manager for the town, and they'll help figure it out. And even then, they could get it wrong and get it right. You don't know.
0: But what is it there? I mean, is it is it one in a five hundred
5: year event? How, what is the floodplain? How do you guys oh, categorize? So we categorize it as the one hundred year event. So one hundred. Okay. Anything in the five hundred year event is the X zone, which, having stood here in the floodwaters and sandy, some of the stuff in the five hundred year <laughs> did get wet. So, but we utilize the one hundred year, and then we call it a special flood hazard zone. And then in the town I work in, we actually extend it. There's parts of the coastal area. So going up and down the coast, not only where we are up in point, but going all the way down to Cape May. If you look at some flood maps, you could be a house on the beach and it'll say that you're not in a flood zone because the beach dunes go up and they're bigger and they're higher than... You know, a hundred feet in, or the road behind you. So we've we've gone to establish, and several other towns have established. You know, technically FEMA doesn't think you're in the flood zone because you're on top of a dune for some strange reason. But the municipality, we go ahead and say, hey, you're in the flood zone. If a hurricane comes, you're, you're getting flooded. You're on a dune on the ocean. I was living in Maryland not too long ago,
0: like seven eight years ago, in this tiny little town. I'm blanking on the name, but it had two. One in 500 year flood events within three years of each other. So it's just, it's, it's kind of blowing up the notion of what that really means when you, just, you you tell a community it's a one in a 500 year event. So
5: I'm sorry. It, it, it's horrible terminology. And I, we try and correct it. I explained it to everybody because it is another name for it. You're in a special flood hazard zone that seems to get people understanding a little bit more. Oh, I'm in a special flood hazard zone. And they'll be like, well, how's that going to happen? I'll go, well, it could happen from rain. It could happen from a hurricane, but. Right. Really what's going to happen is a water is pushed into the town because the town was a natural swamp at one point in time. And then we went ahead and built everything. <laughs> so. Right. Can
0: you tell me how data and technology have played a role in your work?
5: Without technology, implementing the model floodplain ordinance that we were talking about would, would be a um, monster undertaking. Between the time that we adopted it and the time that I got my first application in, it was just short of four months. Because you have to come up with a process to receive applications, come up with a process to uh, review applications, come up with a process to inspect that work, and come up with a process to maintain that data going forward. And then all of that has to be able to be publicly available. (laughs) So that would be several binders and a big shelf that we would generate probably monthly in a town like mine. So without technology, you know, all that stuff... (laughs) it's just a monster to deal with. So we utilize two different software programs to get the application process and the information out to our residents in town so that not only can they find out how where the application is, what their status is, or what they're putting in, but also the the data that we've collected or, or the data on their houses we've collected. So whatever way we make that as easy as possible, we use those two pieces of software to do that without it is it possible? Sure. Other towns up and down the New Jersey shore still do this a paper version. I've literally had people come back to me and go, it's so much easier in your town. It's right there at your fingertips. I go, yes. <laughs> took us a <laughs> what while. Is, to get <laughs> what is the software? So, the main software we use as a, as a municipality is called GovPilot. They do multiple different layers of what would just be local required. Software from applications for building permits to you know your dog licenses, your parking permits, all that type of stuff. And the other one that we use is Forerunner, and they're they're primarily information for flood information, so flood data that we were, we maintain there. So maintain heights. You know you we can, you can go on as a resident. And go hey, let me plug in one two three Main Street. That's where my house is. And It'll tell you hey you're in the flood zone or not. And if you're in the flood zone. If we've already collected data, is your house compliant or is your house not compliant? And then we track a bunch of other data points in there as well. They're both pretty useful for the whole system. So one's more educational for the resident. The other one's physical for the permitting process that we need to do.
0: Okay. So last question, you are unique. In a lot of the people that I talked to, that you're not currently an elected official, but you were, like you said earlier, you were an elected official for five years. Tell me a bit about how that informed the work that you're doing as a floodplain manager. Like you have to think about things in a much different way, right?
5: Yeah, I'm able to put different hats on and uh, empathy. I don't think is the right word, but I have different views I could see it from. (laughs) So you know, as a working professional, you're like, oh, this is black and white because I deal with it every day. You know, I'm fully aware and versed of everything. As a resident or an elected official or someone who comes and touches it maybe once a month or, you know, once every other year as a homeowner, you got to re-educate them. There's there's changes that happen every day in this stuff. I try and take that look in the perspective as I talk to my own staff, they might deal with a, a resident coming in who's upset about the whole process or whatever it is. And they're like, "Well, why don't they just understand?" And like well, we deal with this every day. day. They've dealt, This is the first time they've ever dealt with it, and they're you know, 56 years old. So they've gone 50 years through life and not having to deal with floods. So that's why we need to help be kind and educate them. I'm going to a birthday party later of somebody that I met as an elected official who was sitting on my doorstep screaming at me that we were enforcing the flood rules wrong when we rebuilt their Sandy House. We're very friendly now. We've gone past all that, all right. thankfully. But right. I, they literally, I mean... I had to sit there. I, I, the position I'm in now is a construction official. I was an elect official and a, the construction official reported to me back then. And he goes I just I I've explained everything I've been as nice as possible these people are just really pissed off. <laughs> and I go I get it. So as an elected official and sometimes elected officials here do the same thing for me. You get the brunt of the emotion and at the end of the day you go listen, I, you know, we're just the local enforcing body. This the federal government told the state to do this and now the state's telling us to do this. So I wish I could get the head of FEMA on the line and tell you why this rule was made this way. You know, I generally understand why the rules made that way. But there is no reprieve, you know. We're doing this to make your house safer, and we're doing this because if you don't do that and you come back to us as the local federal or state government for money to fix your house that should have been made safe when you had the opportunity to, it's every tax dollar in the country is helping you rebuild your house. So, you know, if your neighbor did the same situation, do you want to go give them $20 to help fix your house when they knew (laughs) they should have fixed it to begin with? (laughs) I don't know. That's kind of how I've looked at it as a politician of yours. And I look at it now as administrators. You got to wear every hat. People are coming in, they have no idea what you're talking about. But sometimes it takes you 25 minutes to explain the whole process to them. But I only have about 3,000 homeowners in town that I have to deal with at, at the end of the day. And occasionally, you know, you get turnover from people buying houses. But my hope is over the next five years, I've educated enough of the people that it's not a daily 25-minute conversation anymore with a homeowner. It's, you know, once a month, (laughs) once a week, I get to have that 25-minute education that I give out.
0: (laughs) So, Michael, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. And this has been a pleasure talking with you.
5: Absolutely. Thanks you for having me. And I'll look forward to listening to the rest of your podcast. I got two or three under the belt. They were all great so far. (laughs)
0: Hey adapters, joining me is Dell Swalls. Dell is the president of Swalls Consulting, an engineering and floodplain management company. Hi, Dell, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, Doug, thanks for having me.
0: All right, let's talk about floodplain management. So, where are you based, though?
2: I'm here in Orlando, Florida.
0: Florida, there's a lot of flooding, but that's not necessarily where you focus on. Can you tell us the geographic region of where you do work?
2: So, I do work across the state of Florida, all the way from the far east to the northwest down to the Keys. So, I'm okay. top to bottom in Florida but also across the nation. So I'm working in Louisiana and Missouri and Maine and Massachusetts and Tennessee. So pretty much all over the place.
0: That gets you around a bit. Let's talk a bit about the flooding issues that you deal with. And I know you are working all over the place, but maybe there's just a couple examples. If people are imagining floodplain management, what does that really mean? Give us some examples.
2: Well, it's... A really wide spectrum of both industries and, and problems and scenarios. So I serve on the board of directors for the Florida Floodplain Managers Association, which is a group of over a thousand community officials, surveyors, engineers, technical professionals, private consultants across the state of Florida. And these are as varied as you get. You'll have a community official who is the, an engineer who runs the public works department, you'll have a community official who's the floodplain manager who's the tax official. And so you have a wide range of technical background and expertise all trying to accomplish the same thing, which is managing the floodplain and the flood risk for their communities. And I'm the past chair of FFMA and so sitting on the board of directors for them, the focus is to help all these different aspects of floodplain management. The focus here is to Take all these different backgrounds of floodplain managers and help them accomplish their goals, which is serving the residents. And I'm also the past regional director for the National Association of State Floodplain Managers. So I represented the eight states in the Southeast US for them. And so going from floodplain management in Key West to floodplain management in Nashville, Tennessee, water flows very differently in those two locations. Right. It's a wide variety of scenarios here looking at. What does it mean for a community that's had two 500-year floods in three years in the mountains to update the regulations and look at different ways to handle flood risk versus a barrier island that just got washed away by a hurricane?
0: Okay, so that's actually news to me. I didn't realize that there is such diversity in being a floodplain manager. And why do you think, what's the history there? That, I mean, you have such diverse backgrounds, but you're here, you're dealing with it. I, you just described that it could be a little bit different in each, not a little bit, a lot different. But why such different groups ultimately take on those responsibilities or, I guess, different backgrounds?
2: Well, it's very resource dependent in a lot of areas. And there's no uniform approach other than the nature of the industry as it's developed organically of what a floodplain manager means. You know, in a lot of areas, floodplain manager is not really a defined role. The ASFPM, the the National Association I mentioned, they've got a designation of a certified floodplain manager, which is a minimum level of expertise and experience you need to pass that exam and receive that certification. But so many of these communities, they don't have the resources to hire an engineer to Mm, run their public works department. Or they don't have a public works department, or they have two and a half staff running the entire community. And it's either the mayor or the road crew Hmm. or the receptionist. So which one gets the hat? Wow. And I've had everything from a 911 operator who liked to make maps, who became the floodplain manager, or tax officials, very common. We've got city clerks, especially when you get out west in areas that are very rural a lot of the floodplain managers are also the city clerk or if they're just the receptionist.
0: Let me see if I have this right, though. I, I was digging around and I found a quote that you gave during a presentation. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but you said, floods are going to happen. It is only a disaster when humans get in the way. And so what did you mean by that?
2: Well, I wish I could take credit for that quote. Okay. But that's a Gilbert White quote. And he's recognized as the father of floodplain management. But what it means is... If a hurricane happens and a flood happens and there's nobody in the way to get damaged, we don't call it a disaster. We call it an event. A hurricane in the middle of the ocean is just there. But when you get human infrastructure, when you get humans in the way, houses in the way, roads in the way that can be damaged, then it becomes a disaster. There's the story that I heard several years ago. Alabama has done a really good job of mitigating flood risk in some areas. And there's a river in Southern Alabama that there was a major flood that occurred, and the floodplain, when it the flood happened and the river jumped its banks, the floodplain was three miles wide. And I mean, land, underwater, three miles wide, but it wasn't a declared disaster because nothing but a couple of homes got flooded because they had removed everything. So that was a flooding event, not a flooding disaster.
0: Talk about, and now that you've given me this background, like floodplain managers could be from all walks of life, but how has data and technology informed your work? Because I'm sure it's it probably varies on what people are using depending on the resources they have, right? What, what are you using out there?
2: Well, th- the data-driven analysis question and issue is a, a really big issue in our industry that can move the needle or not. So you've got a lot of communities that have tons of resources that are using your latest ArcGIS mapping or QGIS mapping software, where they've got this mega computing system that can process tons of data, whether it be topography, rainfall, land use, or and they can do the calculations and the analysis to develop these really robust, detailed floodplain models. And they have other areas where their floodplains have been drawn in. Basically, it looks like a five-year-old took a crayon and just drew in everywhere there's a tree. And so when you've got that wide range of data sets that are out there to manage flood risk with, but you've also got communities that don't have access to the data or the the technology. So for me, I use a lot of different modeling softwares. I use HEC-RAS, I use ICPR, XPSWIM, SWIM. SWIM. There's so many different tools to both quantify how much water's running off when it rains, and then how fast it's going, how deep it's getting when it gets in the river and the lakes, and then the coastal analysis and analyzing waves running up the ocean or running up the beach and how far they get. So there's all these different tools to analyze this data and then all these tools to visualize it. So produce maps, produce data sets to show you how deep the water is going to get versus just giving you arbitrary elevation that may not mean anything. So there's there's so many different approaches to this technology and this analysis. And now you have 2D modeling, which is changing the way analysis is done. They can really take complicated areas and better estimate the flood risk. But the data is only as good as the tool you're using. And it's only as good as the way you're communicating it. I can make you a thousand pretty maps. And if the data is 80 years old, it's just a pretty map.
0: So have you you've used so some of the
2: outputs that f- through the forerunner software though, right? I I've got some exposure to a lot of their data sets and and their work. I haven't used the software and the tools specifically to develop data sets, but I have a lot of clients who are communities who have used it. So I've, I've got some osmosisly adjacent experience with it, I guess.
0: That's all right. And so these other communities that are using it, do you find that with with these kind of modeling software tools, now at the stage where people can really use them effectively? Because sometimes even there's just not that expertise to use basic software.
2: Well, a lot of the Forerunner software is very user friendly, but there's a wide variety of skill sets needed. So I've I've got a community now who's talking about jumping in with both feet, but I'm not sure they have the expertise to use it effectively. And so we're we're looking at the options and kind of I'm trimming down the buffet because their eyes are bigger than their stomach right now. Interesting.
0: You've been doing flood plain management for a while. How would you say just I mean if flooding is in the news a lot lately probably cuz there's a lot more people but how has it changed over the course of your career? Just can you give us that 30,000 foot view of how it's changed?
2: Well, so I started my career in DC working on a FEMA contract making the maps and learning the regulations from that side. And in the last 23 years, I've switched to being on the other side of the, the table, supporting communities and doing the analysis and helping communities navigate the federal regulations and how they interconnect with the state and local regulations. And in that time, the framework for regulating the flood risk at the federal level has changed very little. There's been some tweaks here and there, a few adjustments to some of the policies. It's basically the same approach in a lot of ways or regulatory framework 25 years later. And flood risk has definitely changed. Technology has changed. But it taking an act of Congress, uh, that phrase is not just a euphemism. (laughs) It's pretty apropos in a lot of this. So the, the floodplain management, I guess, the main ways it's changed is that the local level ownership of flood risk and floodplain management has, I think, significantly increased due to necessity in a lot of ways. And this is really the approach FEMA has been saying communities should take for decades anyway. But when Big Brother gives you a map and gives you a set of rules and you can just follow that, it's easy to get lackadaisical on kind of coast. But I think a lot of communities are are taking ownership of this. And with the changes in rainfall patterns and sea level rise coming into play, regardless of where people fall on the acceptance of that risk and those changes happening, they still see the results of it. And you may have somebody who refuses to acknowledge climate change, yet they're really trying to figure out why their streets are flooding all the time now. And so you don't have to convince somebody in the Keys that the sea level is rising because it's in their yard where it wasn't 40 years ago. You've got community in Southwest Florida that they have no wake zone signs on their streets because four or five times a year, their streets are submerged in seawater. And so you don't have to convince those folks that it's happening. So I think the change is that local ownership. And I think that's a success. I think that local ownership is a measure of success of the floodplain management program over the last 40 and 50 years. In that it started at the federal level, then the states got involved, and now we've given our locals the feet to carry this, You know, the tools and the expertise to carry this in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, a lot of times it's a ground up battle because the federal one size fits all breaks down very quickly. Even a state one size fits all approach kind of breaks down quickly.
0: You have experience in Southwest Florida, and I think Fort Myers specifically, when Hurricane Ian hit last year. Can you tell me a bit about that? I I think there were some issues there, right?
2: Well, yes. Yeah. So when Hurricane Ian hit, and it hit Fort Myers Beach and the Fort Myers area and came through, it caused significant devastation. But it's not the first time this has happened. I did a presentation at the Australian floodplain conference this year that was on Mexico Beach, which is up in the panhandle and Mexico Beach got hit by Hurricane Michael in 2018. And so you've got this major hurricane that hit an area that had not been hit in over 100, 150 years this badly, and just wiped out the community. And the initial response was, we need to do better. So the community paused permitting for 90 days so they could figure out, all right, we don't know what to do, so let's figure it out first. They got a new set of maps. They figured out that they needed to raise their regulations. The FEMA minimum, the building code minimum, was not enough. So they actually went in as a really wise city commission. Instead of doing a foot above FEMA's elevation, which is the bare minimum, they went a foot and a half above the five hundred year everywhere. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so they they recognized that Hurricane Michael came through and the wave was fourteen feet deep at my parents' place there. And then this higher regulation the city enforced was only six feet deep. So still drastically under Hurricane Michael. But they recognize we need to do better. We may not be able to protect everything to a 14-foot wave coming through if that ever happens again, but we want to do something better. Fast forward two and a half years later, and because of local pressure and political pressure, they caved, dropped the regulations back to just a half a foot above the bare minimum, and so really forgot, quote unquote, how bad it was, if not in reality, then in practice. So fast forward to Hurricane Ian coming through, and you got a, a Barrier Island, Fort Myers Beach, and that coastal area that just got demolished. And a lot of the conversations that I've heard that I've been part of have been, "How do we build back exactly like it was before?" I was interviewed on a local radio station there, and that was the conversation. Well, here are the rules, but how do we? The phrase "get around them" wasn't used, but it sure felt like that was the approach. How can we? Build them back on the ground. Well, you had a very large wave come through and washed everything away. Well, yeah, yeah, but that won't happen again. And so, this idea that out of it's behind us, let's move forward. The "build back better" phrase was never part of the conversation. It was "build back cheaper." And so, I actually have had to step away from my working relationship with some of these communities because. We've talked about what they need to do, and the refusal to do anything but what they did before is heartbreaking. But at some point, I can't be a part of you refusing to change. And the quote even was said, well, if we build up all these houses on piles, it won't be the community we had. And I said, you don't have the community you had to begin with. It's gone. What are you trying to recreate this perfect scenario to lose it all once again? So it's very frustrating and it's really difficult for me as a consultant and being on the board of directors for these nonprofit organizations to walk away from a community like that, because I know the residents are the ones who are going to be left holding the bag when the next storm comes through. But there's a lot of people who want help. And so at some point, there's only so many resources and time. So I have to focus on those who want help and I can, I can help and just hope the others learn before it's too late. Well,
0: that was great <laughs> explanation of what sort of happened there. M- my in-laws live in Fort Myers half the year, so they weren't there when Hurricane Ian hit, but they were in a- a- one of those tall condos near downtown on the south side of the river. And yeah, they had giant boats washed up on the, the base of these condos. It was truly a dramatic event. And I was following it a little bit afterwards, and I was curious because this notion of like, we were just going to restore everything And it sounds like they're taking a lot of the wrong steps. So that's certainly discouraging.
2: It really is. And it's to the point of where I know certain consultants in some of these communities have been told to, you know, you can still do the work, but you can't speak. You know, you can't come to a city commission meeting and say anything because we don't want to hear what you have to say. And these are the technical experts they've hired to do the work. I feel really bad for the staff because the staff in these communities are caught between a rock and a really, really hard place. And they want to do the right thing. But the political wheel, the political pressure and the pitchforks marching down the street kind of mob mentality has been really hard to push back against. And I think that's one of the values of organizations like FFMA and ASFPM and corporate consultants like Forerunner who are helping drive this conversation and lead this conversation for those whose voices are being silenced.
0: Well, Dell, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. You're doing some really interesting work there, and thanks for sharing your story.
2: Appreciate you having me on, Doug.
0: Hey, Adapters, joining me is Matthew Langley. Matthew is the floodplain administrator of development services for the city of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. I I think you're the first person I've ever had on from Iowa, but tell us a bit about Cedar Rapids. What's
6: that city like? Yeah, Cedar Rapids, we're the second largest city in the state of Iowa. We have about 134,000 people. We've got a fair amount of industry and mixed development, and it's really starting to grow and take off. We've had a couple of big disasters in about the last 12, 14 years. One massive flood in 2008 and then a derecho event in 2020. Both were major disaster events, so it's interesting time for our city. Okay, so you're relatively new in your position, right? Yeah, I've been here just a little over two years now myself. I'm originally from Oregon, so I've come all the way out here to be able to work with a city that's really interested in floodplain development and management practices.
0: We're going to get into some of the the specifics of what's going on there, but tell us your responsibilities as floodplain
6: administrator. What do they expect you to do in that position? For my position, that includes day-to-day permitting, management of the floodplain program, development of the community rating system, a program developed by FEMA that incentivizes communities to go above and beyond standards for development practices, outreach messaging, and preparedness. And the farther up you go in the program, the greater the discount your residents get on flood insurance. And so that's all automatic based on your rating. So it's something that is a big priority for our community. And can you give us some background
0: about the flooding in your region? I mean, is flooding a major issue for the city?
6: Flooding has been an on and off again situation here for the city based on kind of what I've looked up and talked to and looked into the history of. One of the biggest ones was, like I said, that flood of 2008. It exceeded the 500-year floodplain estimates. It ended up being a a massive disaster event that wiped out uh, whole neighborhoods, really devastated, put our downtown something like 12 feet underwater. It ended up being an absolutely devastating event wow. to the city. And it's taken a long time to be able to recover from that. And the city has been working diligently to incentivize regrowth and new development to come into the areas where we can and build out longer paths. We have had some more recent flooding events as well in 2016, but those were pretty minor. And the city's response from what I could see was very, very fast. And they kept it in check and kept an eye on it throughout the event. And you just described some of the flooding
0: challenges, but what are some of the other challenges that you face there in that community, I guess, that makes maybe your job difficult? I mean, are there a lot of resources available to do what you're doing? I mean, what are the
6: broader challenges? I mean, is the population supportive of what you do? So far, from my experience, the population has been fairly supportive. Having multiple disaster events in a lifetime really helps a lot of people remember these events and because of how devastating they were. So there's a lot of community support and a lot of political support and city support as a whole for managing these. One of the biggest things is just keeping people familiar with the practices for these development projects as well. So when you're building the floodplain, there's special rules, especially if you're a homeowner, you may not always deal with these until you go to get a permit. And then you get a shock of, well, you need these other things as well. We need these standards met. And so there's a lot of outreach and education that I'm really trying to do to help people understand and give them a friendly face, a friendly point of contact to come to for guidance on these and to help them navigate that path so that we can make sure everything is built to a higher standard and better protected. You just alluded to that, but I'm going to ask you this specifically. Maybe there's some
0: examples. So, what are your biggest flood-related concerns? And you talked about flood history and such, but now that you're on the job, what are the different things that come up that you get you really concerned about what you have to
6: do? Some of the biggest things is always going to be helping people understand that the FEMA maps that we use they account for riverine flooding that's our very specific type of flooding that we experience so we get some consistent type flood events and then we have some flash flood prone areas but helping people understand that the lines on those maps are where at one point the government had to call it for where those lines need to be they needed a baseline measurement but that's not inclusive of the whole risk factor. So even if you're outside of that 100-year floodplain, that 1% annual chance, getting people to understand that you're still at risk if you're outside of those areas, it doesn't account for rainfall, it doesn't account for these other factors that still have you facing a flood risk, and the fact that A lot of these maps are very, very out of date. Flood maps are updated either when a community initiates the process, which is a labor-intensive process, or when FEMA is able to do a new detailed study of different waterways in your area, which they're trying to do that for the whole country. So it takes a while for them to get around to certain communities. We've got some new maps coming down that are updating maps that were last studied in either 91 or 82. And so there's a huge time gap and we're seeing the floodplain increase to reflect the changes in development patterns, reflect the new analysis methods that are used that are better able to model the waterways, all these different things that people who were historically out, quote unquote, of the floodplain by the maps at the time are now being shown as in, which is to be expected, unfortunately, because it better models the risk for them.
0: Okay, so you had talked about it just briefly earlier, but tell us a bit more about this
6: community rating system. What is that for? How do you work with that? It is a program that FEMA developed and works with communities on. Uh, it's a 600 plus page manual that sits at my desk at all times. <laughs> it tackles a number of things. It's FEMA's way to encourage that a community increases how much they are communicating risk and awareness, and flood insurance to their communities. It encourages proper management practices of development in the floodplain, so making sure things like elevation certificates are properly maintained. It encourages having higher standards above and beyond what FEMA requires as part of the National Flood Insurance Program. So things like communities who go above FEMA's requirement of the lowest floor of a building going to the base flood elevation, A lot of communities go above that, and we get credit for that. So here in Cedar Rapids, we require that the lowest floor be elevated to one foot above base flood elevation. And that includes utilities, mechanical, electrical, all that kind of stuff, too. But then there's also credit that you can get for developing these long-range planning tools, planning for substantial damage. So when a disaster event hits, the city has a coordinated plan in responding to How do we assess these buildings? How do we move through the process of what FEMA calls substantial damage and what our ordinance calls as well? And so by having these planning tools for different things, different components of floodplain management practices, whether it's our warning systems or our, like I said, the substantial damage plans, different things like that. And our hazard mitigation plans, linking all of these pieces together and then connecting to other risk factors like the stormwater programs and the drainage programs, FEMA recognizes communities that go above and beyond. And by doing that, we move up in the rankings, which is a 10 to 1 is how they do it, 10 being the lowest, 1 being the highest. We're currently what's called a CRS-6 community, which is a 20% discount for our residents that is automatically removed from their flood insurance premiums. So it saves our residents quite a lot on flood insurance costs because everyone knows flood insurance is not exactly the cheapest thing out there.
0: (laughs) I know this is an important part of what you do there. Explain your role, and I
6: guess even your office's role in outreach and in community engagement. So from... Our department is the department that administers the program, but this is also the first time that the city has had a dedicated full-time position for floodplain management. It's something that in a lot of communities is typically a hat on a hat or the third hat that someone might be wearing. And so a lot of what my role is really focused on developing that program, refining our outreach, really trying to ramp up what we're doing to raise awareness develop these different tools and juggling the permitting as well. And some of that's internal discussions on getting a standardized process together and helping people internally know what it is that we need for floodplain management practices. And then also conveying that to the development community and to the residents. And then as far as the community rating system program, a big part of what I'm doing right now is developing different ways to communicate and talk to our residents and our developers to help them understand these risks and encourage them to take additional precautions, to be aware of these things and to give them easier tools to look at what are the stream gauges at, what are the flood risks at, where can I find information on my property if I have these documents like an elevation certificate already. We're working on Ways to be able to expand ease of access. And that's probably one of the biggest things that I'm really working on right now.
0: Tell me a bit about how data and technology
6: play a role in the work that you do. It's a huge part of what I do. A big part of what the community rating system requires is annually and every five years, there's inspections of your program. And so we have to document things very, very carefully. And as part of that, There's been a number of different ways that we've handled that. There's obviously internal file management systems, permitting systems, use of a tool. The tool forerunner in particular has been something that's really helped streamline a lot of what I've been doing. We have to be able to manage elevation certificates. It's something that's required of the CRS program itself. And As part of that, we have to maintain accuracy of those. FEMA expects a 90% accuracy at every annual inspection to maintain participation. Yeah, it's a little bit of a high standard, (laughs) and you get only one attempt to correct that if there are errors. So if you only have three elevation certificates in a yearly cycle, then it only takes one of those to drop you below that threshold. So it can be a little tight. But Tools like are really kind of help us manage and track and keep an eye on all that information. And then also making it publicly available to our residents as well, um, whether it's through public-facing map tools where you can look at the documents or we revamped our floodplain website to really try and increase the accessibility and understanding of the information. And we're constantly trying to figure out what our residents want and need typically in terms of floodplain type materials.
0: Floodplain managers are in the thick of adaptation planning these days. That's what you're doing. So what advice would you give other floodplain managers out there or maybe on a different part of their journey in all this?
6: One of the biggest things since I started in floodplain management, what really surprised me is it's a fairly tight community, fairly close community. You're not alone in this. We may be in different jurisdictions. We may be in different states, but we're all dealing with the same sets of rules and the same sets of challenges. And leaning on each other is probably one of the biggest things. I've got a few other floodplain administrators that I'll bounce questions and ideas off of, and they'll do the same with me. And it's such a strong thing to have different levels of expertise to be able to sometimes go, hey, you know, the NFIP says this. How are you guys interpreting that? It it really helps strengthen and bounce off of ideas for how to interpret these and make sure that we're not going to trip on these federal rules. And ultimately, that's one of the biggest challenges. You know, communities are trying to make sure that we're meeting these federal requirements and... FEMA will sometimes come back at you and say, no, you're doing that wrong. You need to fix that. And so we're really trying to make sure we're doing that while keeping our development practices moving forward and being able to have a supportive community, whether that's at the conferences that as uh, certified floodplain managers, we're always interested in talking and going over these details and the challenges and kind of picking each other's brains. So don't be afraid to reach out to another floodplain administrator. We're all in the same boat together in this. <laughs> so what do you hope to achieve in the next few years? You are,
0: How are you going to prepping for the, I guess, the mid to long term?
6: Mid to long term, one of the things that we're working on is, and is a priority for me, is getting to the next CRS rating, getting to a CRS 5 for our community, and then getting us to a 4. So it's a fairly big jump, but the benefits and improved resiliency and protection for our residents combined with the decrease in flood insurance is a huge benefit for our community. One of the things I should have mentioned earlier as well is that you know Cedar Rapids, out of all of the communities in the state of Iowa, has the highest number of flood insurance policies and the highest total premiums of every other community within the state. And so for us, being able to help protect our residents who have these flood insurance policies, who some do or don't have the choice whether they have a mortgage or not, you know, reducing that cost burden on them while making sure that all future development is built to a better standard so that we can bounce back from a disaster so that we're handling that upfront mitigation and adaptation components to be able to adjust our behaviors. You know, there's a number of projects in the city going on that are working on adaptation after the 2008 flood. But, you know, we're also looking to how do we make sure that future development practices on the private side are built to a good quality. And the CRS program is a great incentive to help build towards that as well.
0: Last question. Cedar Rapids bills itself
6: as the city of five seasons. What the heck does that mean? Oh, (laughs) it has been a while since I've looked up the city of five seasons. Oh, So they don't force you to learn as working for the
0: city? I'm a little bit out of info on that. (laughs) Keep looking. Keep looking. Because your manager, if they they listen to this, they're going to dock your bonus. You
6: know, that's what... Oh. That's right. It's based on a Bible verse, actually. Okay. And I've got the quote right here, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. So, they added an explanation to go with that, saying that life is the sum of all seasons with which is filled life. And if we have time to enjoy the things most important to us, life is rich and full indeed. In Cedar Rapids, there's time enough, time to enjoy the season as they pass. Extra time, precious time, a fifth season.
0: I think that's my first Bible verse on the podcast. I was hoping it'd be just something goofy. I'm not here oh. like uh, promoting one religion over the other, but okay, there you go. I just saw it. It's on a the logo there on your website. So I was just like, "What that all about? Matthew, this has been great. You guys are doing some great
6: work there. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to, and thank you so much for having me as well, Doug.
0: Okay, guys, we are back with Susanna Foe. Welcome back, Susanna.
1: Hi, thanks for having me again.
0: We just heard from some of your partners. They are doing some amazing work out there all over the place. We heard some interesting things around the places that they live. It was really cool to get to know these people. I just want to bring up too, and I brought that up with some of them, is that I really did understand who floodplain managers are. And I guess you needed to sort of understand this when you were developing your software, but They they could be like the tax person that now is also the floodplain manager.
1: Yeah, that's totally right. And I think that was really surprising to us when we got started too, is that a lot of our partners wear an incredible amount of hats and it gives them kind of superpowers and that they have expertise in all sorts of things. But you're totally right that it also means that, you know, when we are building software to meet the needs of floodplain managers, it's a really diverse set of people whose needs we're meeting.
0: Yeah. They were an interesting bunch. So let's talk a bit. So this is flooding that's happening. Is there anything you guys are working on going beyond flooding? What's sort of next for you in development?
1: It's a very timely question because I think something that I think has made us sort of successful since we founded is that we really sort of follow the needs of our partners. And so all of the features that we've built so far have really been based on the feedback of our partners. Um, We benefit greatly from their feedback and their partnership in, in developing the software. Looking into the future, you know. Along that line, a lot of our partners are pulling us into sort of expanded use cases, which is really exciting for us. So we started in floodplain compliance, but as we talked about earlier, we have started building out features into the post-disaster space, the disaster recovery space. We're going to be sort of expanding the software to meet more needs as it pertains to flooding and sort of equipping residents with The mitigation tools they need to be successful. And then beyond flooding, as you asked before, we are, our vision for the software is that it is a sort of total climate resilient software. And so we will be expanding to additional hazards in the near future as well.
0: I have to ask, because everyone's asking this question, how is AI playing a role in what you do? Is that like something under the hood? What is it? Or are you incorporating it? Because I'm actually using AI in my podcast production. So is it playing a role?
1: So for sure, you know, everybody's talking about AI these days, and AI does play a role in our software. So we use computer vision to extract data from floodplain permits in order to sort of generate insights for our partner communities. Um, It's really valuable just because um, a lot of the documentation that uh, floodplain managers typically have access to might be really valuable information. For example, you know how high a property is in a flood zone is really important to know, um, but might not necessarily be that accessible at scale. Um, so one of the big things that we do is we extract the data from elevation certificates to make that data structured, geospatial, a lot more accessible to our partners so that they can use it for everything from compliance to planning.
0: Great. And I have to ask this because I've done some climate modeling episodes and they are extremely popular. So here I am working with a software company that obviously climate modeling is part of this. And so a lot of these models aren't necessarily reliable. And then you have local government entities like people that we interviewed in this episode. They don't necessarily even know how to use it or what's under the hood. How do you communicate to these groups that might not necessarily have the sophistication to even understand what you're doing with your software. And I guess to have confidence that your software is up to snuff to do what it's supposed to do.
1: Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. And I, I think I remember Dell talking a little bit about sort of like how much data there is available, but how some communities might not be able to sort of do anything with it. And that's really sort of the space that we operate in. And sort of why we are so driven towards our mission is because we do really believe that there is an incredible amount of data available, both at the fingertips of our partners, but then also just sort of in the world. And we're sort of in the business of making that data more accessible for day-to-day use cases. And yeah, I think your question was around sort of like how we communicate when sort of there's a lot of complex technical, when we do something that's like sort of complex or technical. And I think the the way that we do that is by making our software really easy to use. So the software is built to be used without technical expertise so that anyone who even if you don't aren't very confident with computers, you can utilize it. And that's really the sort of design and engineering ethos that we bring to the table, for sure, because we want to make it so that everyone can sort of leverage data and technology in a way that empowers their work.
0: And I guess it's, it's a little bit easier, too, with your software that you can ground truth some of the stuff. Because a lot of these things, they come yeah. in like 2050, 2070. You're actually just dealing with even flooding events that they're experiencing. Now you can actually ground truth it.
1: Yeah, you're totally right that, you know, a really great way to use our software is to sort of use it to cross-reference some of these projections that our communities have access to with the ground truth data that they're bringing into Forerunner. I think another important use case of Forerunner is that the software is to some extent kind of model agnostic. So we will bring in whatever sort of modeling our partners utilize to enforce regulations in their floodplains into the software. And that allows them to both have the flexibility to use whatever data they have, and they want to use. But it also sort of opens up a world in which they can use more sort of innovative forward facing modeling, because they can use a software like ours to be able to mobilize that data in a way that allows everyone to be able to access it.
0: I I want to follow up on this is that you mentioned that you've grown so much. You have like 30 people here. And in my previous episodes, when I talked about these things, part of it is like these are highly technical companies that are doing climate modeling. And part of the problem is just interfacing with the public and explaining to them what these things are even capable of doing is communication. Are you hiring people like that? Is that something you think about?
1: Yeah, It is a really big issue, I think, across the board, both sort of flood risk communication and also climate change uh, communication. So we talk with our partners a lot about that. And so a lot of the sort of ways in which we help with communication is through the software itself in terms of making it so that our partners can more easily communicate flood risk to their residents. So in the past year alone, we've made a few improvements to the public facing websites that we create for our partners in order to make sure that they are communicating as much nuance as possible. And so some things that we've added are, we've added the ability to sort of customize information requests from residents so that when residents are confused about flood risk or they're confused about jargon or they're confused about terminology, they can be very specific in how they sort of ask for help from their, from their communities. Flood risk communication is really a central part of what we do at Forerunner and will continue to be.
0: A lot of times people who get into the climate adaptation space don't necessarily know that they're getting into adaptation. They're just doing maybe disaster management and such. And so is that something that's talked about with your staff? Does your staff feel like they're doing climate adaptation work?
1: Yeah, we talk about that a lot. And I think, you know, the team is very energized and mobilized around our mission. And so we're really lucky to have a team that feels very passionately about the impact that we have, and also sort of how it's growing. So we talk about that a lot internally, both sort of like how some of the smaller, finer grain work that we're doing contributes to a larger mission of enabling climate adaptation, and sort of how adaptation is tied to sort of on-the-ground disaster recovery and on-the-ground code enforcement, right? And so, you know, when you think about floodplain ordinance compliance, you're not necessarily thinking, oh, that's the secret sauce to enabling adaptation. But we really believe that it is. And that's why we do what we do.
0: So if people want to learn more about what you guys do, what do you recommend?
1: So if you'd like to learn more about what we do, feel free to send us an email. You can email me at Susanna at withforerunner.com or go to our website, which is www.withforerunner.com.
0: All right, Susanna, it has been great partnering with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Hey actors, that is a wrap. Thanks to everyone who participated in this episode. I want to especially thank Susanna Foe and her team at Forerunner for partnering with America Adapts. I love sharing these stories of people actually doing adaptation work on the ground. Climate modeling and data are increasingly becoming critical tools for people doing climate adaptation work. So, not all floodplain managers might think they're doing adaptation work, but as the climate changes and extreme weather increases, they will be at the front lines of adaptation at the local community level. Definitely check out my show notes for more information on Forerunner and the great work they are doing and links to my other guests and the communities they live in. Thanks again for everyone participating and sharing their story. And thanks again to Forerunner for partnering and sponsoring this episode. And don't forget to submit an abstract for ICR24 Innovations in Climate Resilience Conference in Washington, D.C. this April. Links to the conference are in my show notes. I say this every episode, reach out, send me an email, tell me a favorite episode, recommend guests and definitely share how the podcast benefits what you do. That's incredibly important as I plan these podcasts. It is the highlight of my week and I love learning about all the different ways people are adapting. I'm at gmail.com. Okay, so what's your adaptation story? Do people that you engage with understand what is climate adaptation? Are you finding that webinars and white papers aren't really resonating in ways that promote your work? Well, consider telling your story in a podcast. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation story, consider sponsoring a whole episode of America Apps. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location for some of these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the amazing work you're doing. Some of my partners in this process have been the Natural Resources Defense Council, World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, UCLA. But tell. Forerunner, it's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. If you work in a foundation, maybe you want to highlight the adaptation resilient work of your foundation or of the grantees you're funding. There is no better platform than this podcast to get the word out on adaptation to some of the most influential and active adaptation professionals in the world. And if you're interested in having me keynote speak at your conference or corporate event, reach out. More and more sectors are realizing they need to start thinking about climate adaptation. And for many in those fields, they have very little exposure to resilience and adaptation planning. I can speak to this issue and help you create awareness in your sector. Reach out. I'm at AmericaDaps at gmail.com. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.